You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. This program is supported by attorney Susan Jenkins, a national advocate for midwives and birth activists, specializing in business, governmental, and political issues related to birthing rights and the practice of midwifery. She can be reached at area code 866 Six eight six one three four eight. Would you like to support Birth Aloud Radio? Please contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. We're talking today about a topic that I just published an article on earlier this week. The topic is implied consent. And I have a special guest who I will introduce in just a moment to talk about this concept and what it means in maternity care. Let me start with a quick excerpt just from the very beginning of that article to set this up for anybody who's listening. Even in 2017, women's consent rights in childbirth are disturbingly unclear to the professionals and institutions delivering their medical care. One aspect is the idea of, quote, implied consent, end quote, a concept mischaracterized by hospitals to a number of women who have contacted me and sometimes used to justify violations of their dignity and rights. Specifically, when these women have complained to their hospitals about receiving one or more non-consented or forced procedures in birth, they were told that their explicit consent was not necessary because they had A, agreed to be admitted to the hospital, or B, signed blanket consent forms giving the medical staff permission to treat them. Sometimes these hospitals refer to this erroneously as implied consent. The idea is that once the women were admitted or signed those forms, they should no longer have had the expectation that the care team must obtain consent for each procedure during treatment, including medication, surgical cuts, and procedures performed on and through the vagina, but rather expect that the care team had the authority to administer whatever treatment they chose for the duration of that patient's labor or hospital stay. Put another way, from the perspective of the hospital, these women had forfeited their rights to informed consent and refusal in order to give birth in their facilities. This belief by hospitals is wrong legally and ethically. That's the end of the excerpt. We're going to talk about this today with my dear friend and well-respected colleague, Hermine Hayes-Klein who is a human rights lawyer, a birth rights lawyer, and the founder of Human Rights in Childbirth. Hi, Hermine. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for welcoming me to your show. Sure thing. Can you give the audience a little bit of background on who you are and what you do? Yes, um, sure. I'm a lawyer, and uh, the focus of a lot of my work in the last five-plus years has been on women's rights in maternity care um, internationally, sort of what women are experiencing in maternity care in relation to what to fundamental human rights, the, the rights that women carry into birth and that are enshrined in each state or nation as legal rights. 
one of those rights for you know the issue you're talking about today is the right of informed consent and refusal. And so that's something that I've worked on in relationship to plaintiff's actions that women have brought for a violation of consent and the right to consent and refuse um, treatment during healthcare around pregnancy and childbirth and postpartum, and also in cases involving women's right to make supported choices, um, like the right for, to vaginal birth after cesarean and the right to give birth outside the hospital with midwives. So that's my work, both um, as a practicing attorney a lot of the time, and also in speaking that I do on the topic and uh, some writing. Awesome. And I've been so, working you- with you for, for four of those years, I would say, to develop, you know, to, to, to understand more deeply what women are experiencing. And both you and I have heard from many women. We've worked on cases together. All, uh, you know, I think four of the cases that you mentioned in your article were ones that you and I um, worked on together and supported together over years after those women reached out to us, as so many women have and do. And so over this time, we've built up a lot of uh, knowledge about what women are experiencing in birth and what's happening when they try to enforce their right. Right. What we're talking about today is how skewed implied consent has been as a concept for so many years, and not just in birth, but in other aspects of life related to sex. And I see birth as on the sexual spectrum. Hermine can talk to us about this a little bit. Um, I know that she and I have had many conversations over the years about the parallels between birth and sex and assault in birth and assault in sex. So I'm looking forward to what I think is going to be a really interesting conversation about this whole idea that is sort of fueled by a really skewed interpretation of the idea of implied consent, whether we are talking about date rapists or hospital administrators who are misinforming patients about what implied consent means. Yeah. Well, I would suggest that before we talk about implied consent, we talk a little bit generally about consent, not, you know, because many listeners to this show might not have really encountered this issue and might ask as many folks do, well, what are you talking about? You know, when would a woman, you know, reject her doctor's order for intervention to, for the well-being of her and her baby? Um, so I think we can back up and talk about that. And what we're talking about here is the right to consent or refuse offers of treatment in pregnancy and birth. And in the context of labor and delivery, that means accept or reject the interventions that a woman might be offered when she goes to the hospital. And that's everything from a haplock to being asked to do anything in particular with her body, put it in any particular position to accept any medication, to be cut, whether that's an episiotomy or cesarean surgery. And I think there are, there are also, you know, to receive a, an intervention meant to facilitate, to you know, induce or facilitate labor, something like a, a, the sweeping of the membrane at the cervix. These are all treatments that obstetric providers can offer women to support them during labor that can be appropriate and can even save lives when appropriate. But we also know that those interventions are massively overused in today's maternity care system that, you know, between the time I was born in the mid-70s and today, the C-section rate rose from five to 
33% nationally and that many hospitals have C-section rates much higher than that. And that the rise in the C-section rate, which is the rate of surgical births, surgical deliveries in the United States, hasn't brought about improvement in outcomes for mothers or babies. And in fact, our outcomes are really bad, even though we have this really costly maternity care where, you know, with all of these really expensive surgeries and other interventions, you know, in the world, we have the, we also have um, rising maternal mortality, uh, significant racial disparities in outcomes for mothers and babies, and uh, are, are really not doing actually well at all in ensuring safe outcomes for mothers and babies. So the reality of the system that women are giving birth in, in the United States, is that there's sort of an inclination to use interventions because of providers' perceptions of liability risk and other kinds of incentives that act upon what the recommendations that they give. There's really wide variability in hospitals on things like C-section rates, which can I think they range from like 2 to 70% in hospitals across the United States. Um, and studies have shown that's not because, you know, in the health um, clinical profiles of the women that are giving birth at those hospitals, but in the way that those hospitals are run and the sort of preferences and modes of delivery that have developed culturally in each hospital. So if you're a woman going into that maternity care system and you are willing to receive interventions that you feel are necessary, but you don't want to receive interventions that are not necessary, your right of informed consent and refusal is your only tool. It's your only shield for navigating the sort of dysfunctions that exist in maternity care and for avoiding a surgical birth that you and your baby did not need. So the, the, the right of consent is actually relevant. It's reasonable for women to want to actively exercise it. And yet when women try to actively exercise it, what they're encountering and then reporting to consumer organizations and surveys is that they are receiving um, pushback from providers who don't believe that women have the right to refuse recommended treatments. And that that pushback can range from sort of mildly pressuring to coercive, to bullying, to violence. And those are some of the cases that you mentioned in your article. So I think it's, it's valuable to give that kind of an overview of the consent issue. Um, do you want to add to that at all? Um, yeah, I think that's a really good overview, actually. I think the cesarean variability rate among hospitals is, is 7 to 70%. I just wanted to make that correction. Thank you. Um, And I also wanted to mention that, and maybe this is something we'll talk about later, an obstetrician commented recently on my Facebook page that she did get plenty of training on informed consent. There was not training on informed refusal. So I thought that was a really, really interesting way of looking at it. I think what she said was, the idea is if you give enough information, the patient is going to consent. Right. Uh-huh. That is, if you inform, quote them in the right way, they're going to do what you recommend, and that's a misunderstanding of what informed consent is supposed to actually involve. Right. And, um, and, and, and at it the doesn't. Same time, it doesn't give you room to say no. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's clear that, in fact, medical providers and um, other healthcare providers doing maternity services are not being well trained and informed consent and refusal in any aspect of it. And I think that the um, ACOG quote on your article, 
is a really important one. Um, they say there, as they have in other articles on the topic of maternal decision making, that consent is not supposed to be a signature on a form. And already there's a suggestion in that description of the training that it's sort of what do you have to do to uh, achieve the signature on the form. And so I think that this is a good moment to sort of raise what's going on in why is it that women's rights to autonomy and to be respected as the person who's, you know, most invested in the outcome of this birth, um, you know, wh why is their right to sort of weigh their options and make a decision being violated as widespread as it is? And I think that a pattern that I've seen in talking about it with people over the years is that even people who are really receptive to the topic, who are generally believe in women's rights to autonomy and their sexual and reproductive rights and would march for abortion rights, for example, when you sort of point out that women have the right to informed consent and refusal, they'll say, well, I, you know, I understand that women have this right to informed consent and refusal, but what about the situation where the doctor knows that the baby's in danger or that the baby might even die and the woman, say, refusing a C-section or some other treatment necessary to save the baby's life. You know, are we going to say that the doctor has to let her say no in those circumstances? I've heard versions of that question many times. And the answer to that question is, in fact, even if the doctor thinks that the baby's going to die, the woman legally retains the right to make the decisions, you know, to refuse treatment if she if she wants to do so. And, you know, I, I think it's important to ask people to sort of look at the sort of premises or assumptions that are underlying that question and, and to think those through because that, you know, it includes sort of the assumption that doctors can sort of predict with a reasonable level of certainty whether babies need these interventions in order to survive childbirth. Um, we know that they're wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> we know that with a 33% C-section rate, most of those C-sections um, are unnecessary. So, and we know, you know, there are many studies that show that doctors' ability to accurately read the uh, electronic fetal monitor and use that to predict fetal demise or cerebral palsy and to intervene appropriately is, is very weak. And so, you know, and we know that a lot of these interventions are not evidence-based. So the sort of assumption that doctors have any kind of a crystal ball to know if an intervention is warranted is problematic. We also know from lots of studies that other kinds of incentives are acting upon providers to make them recommend interventions other than the clinical state of the woman and baby in front of them. Pressures are on those doctors to recommend C-sections that they don't actually believe these women need. And, and there's also this sort of assumption that a woman is looking out for her baby as long as she follows doctor's orders. And the moment she deviates from those orders, she is no longer in alignment with her baby. Her doctor remains in alignment with her baby. And she can be sort of accused of maternal fetal conflict. And the sort of assertion of that conflict can be used to override her right of consent in the name of her baby. That's one of, way, one of the ways that the right of, of consent is um, violated. But you're talking in this show about the, right, the, the concept of implied consent, namely that your providers don't have to listen to you when you say, no, I don't want that, because at some other moment, you gave, namely, you know, when you signed a hospital admission form, you gave, quote, implied consent, and they can look to that as governing <laughs> their ability to, get, to give the treatment or the intervention rather than the words coming out of your mouth.
Or just the fact that you chose to be admitted to a hospital. Like that alone Mm. can be called implied consent or has been called implied consent to treatment. The fact that you're even there. And I've heard many of those comments. Mm -hmm. Well, then you shouldn't have come to a hospital. If you didn't want this kind of treatment, then you shouldn't have come to a hospital. Right. And so then what we're saying when we say that is that even knowing what we know about the overuse of interventions, even knowing what we know about the operation of economic incentives and time convenience incentives on providers and recommending interventions that increase risks for mothers and babies when they're not necessary, even knowing what we know about the variability in hospitals, which means that whether a woman's going to receive a recommendation for a C-section doesn't so much depend on her, but what hospital she walks into. Even knowing all that, we're going to say, just by walking into any hospital, you must accept whatever treatment they offer you. And you cannot ask for support to simply let your body push your baby out of your vagina. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what <laughs> that's exactly what some people yeah. are saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so I, I want to circle back to the cultural bias question, you know, because I think that that operates, that, 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 that's something that we have to think about. You know, I, I think when you ask people to really think through what they're saying with that question, and, or when you point them to the ACOG statements that address it conclusively, that say, even if a doctor thinks that baby's going to die, the woman still has the right to refuse treatment. And what that means is that even though it might cause a physician or, or you know, other providers a great deal of distress to support a woman in the right of refusal because they might really emotionally believe that that baby needs their intervention or it's not going to live. They have to find some way to deal with those emotions other than imposing force on the pregnant woman. They can go to therapy, they can do some exercise or meditation or whatever they need to do, but the fact that they might feel that distress does not justify overriding her legal right to informed consent and refusal if she otherwise has that right in her jurisdiction. Yeah. And you've mentioned a couple of times what's underlying that. I think we should talk about that. I think key to this is the fact that we're talking about women's health care. Women. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. There are deep sort of pre-feminist gendered assumptions about female passivity about female sexuality and, and women's ability to even understand their sort of reproductive body that underlie the assumptions about, you know, when women can say what's done to their body and when they must submit to what's being done to it. I mean, again, I, I just want to close the loop on the sort of like implicit bias piece and the medical training piece, you know, and, and the person who came on your page to say, I was trained in informed consent and refusal. You know, the more I hear people, including doctors, say, well, I understand, you know, women might have the right to refuse, but not in a time-sensitive situation like labor and delivery, especially if the doctor thinks that the baby's going to die, in the face of the ACOG opinions that reflect the law and make clear that, in fact, she does have the right to refuse, means that many people, including doctors, are carrying this sort of cultural bias that makes them ask that question if they haven't really thought through or, and, like, encountered information on, the, on this question. They're thinking, well, she doesn't really have a right to refuse if the baby's in danger, does she? And so if we recognize that that bias exists, then the question is, what does medical school do with regard to the bias? You know, how does training address the bias? There's three ways that they could do it. They could either recognize that people are coming in with the bias, that sort of cultural assumption that the woman doesn't have the right to really be supported in her choices during birth, not what's being imposed upon her. 
and they could, you know, address the bias and teach, you know, those ACOG committee opinions and make sure that their students really understand those before they walk out the door. Just to do that would be a lot. It would be huge. Or they can remain neutral with regard to the bias. And if they do that, we can expect that the, the people who enter the sort of medical training will come out with that bias and they'll apply it in their work. And then the third option is that they actually reinforce and strengthen the bias through their languaging and talking about consent and talking about the physician-patient relationship, uh, reinforcing the idea that at the end of the day, the doctor is the decision maker and um, the patient's job is to submit. Yeah. Well, so I want to back up really quickly to just say, Mm -hmm. I think people's imaginations run wild when you say the woman has the right to reject or decline or refuse the intervention even if it endangers her baby's life. You know, I've talked to enough people who don't know that much about birth and maternity care to understand that this is where people's minds go. As if, oh my goodness, if women really had this right, they would just be like letting their babies die all over the place. And I know that this is where people's minds go. If we don't have the right to force interventions on women, what's going to happen to all these poor babies? Well, I think that right there is something that we need to talk about. The fact that people automatically think that without being imposed upon, these women who have carried these babies and go to a hospital for treatment in order to safely deliver the baby, that they are also willing to let their babies die in the course of childbirth, right? Like these things aren't compatible with each other, but I mean, I think it's like an unexamined, almost hysterical belief by people in some ways. Mm. Well, there's like a distrust of women. That's one of the sort of gendered (laughs) axioms underlying this. The sort of totally, yeah. You know, not not sure if we can trust women to make good decisions about their bodies and their babies. The fact is that nobody can guarantee survival in childbirth. Nobody can guarantee a good outcome. You know, there will be some babies that do not survive childbirth and some women who do not survive childbirth, no matter who the decision maker is. And stillbirth happens when doctors are at the wheel with regard to decision making so that it can happen. And it can happen if the woman's making the decision as well. And, you know, I think, first of all, it's important to remember that that doesn't mean that she's to blame for the outcome, right? Any more than the fact that there's a bad outcome following a doctor's recommendation for treatment means that the doctor is to blame for the outcome. Everybody's making their best decision with the information available. And, um, and so, that, you know, that, I think that's important to remember. But the fact is that bad outcomes do occur and might occur, but the, the possibility that they might occur um, doesn't mean that the woman doesn't get to doesn't retain the right of informed consent and refusal. Right. Absolutely. And then we know that um, if, if there is some awful outcome as a result of a woman making her own decisions that go against a recommendation that Mm -hmm. she'll often be treated as well, punitively and like she did it on purpose or she's responsible for her baby's death. And in a way that it's like casting stones at her, not, oh my goodness, we're so sorry that you're suffering through this loss, but rather, how dare you have made that decision? How dare you have killed your baby? People say things like that. (laughs) Right. 
And, Which you, know, you wouldn't can... say to a you wouldn't say to a healthcare professional who has mm, right counseled and you attended assume... and treated throughout right. a birth. It would be or, wrong at least you wouldn't so. say that reflexively. Right. I mean, unfortunately, many people do, and this leads to the liability climate in our culture. You know, unfortunately, when people suffer, when there's a bad outcome, people are looking around for who is to blame, and the fear that they might be blamed is. Uh, a lot drives physician behavior. It's, it's a very real fear that can affect what their recommendations. You know, what, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is the patient's right of autonomy. And so, like, coming back to the right of implied consent, the problem with it isn't necessarily that with the concept of implied consent, right? With the idea that, okay, they signed the form and they sign the form on admission to the hospital, right? It's ridiculous to say that just by walking into a hospital, you consent to whatever they want to do to you. I mean, that if that were the case, then the right of informed consent and refusal would not exist. It's just legally false. And maybe I'm going to take this moment to say, although I am an attorney, nothing I should, I'm saying on this show should be taken as legal advice for you or your situation. If you're looking for, um, to understand your legal rights, talk to an attorney that's licensed in your jurisdiction. I'm talking generally about jurisdictions that have a right of informed consent and refusal and what that should mean in the maternity care context. So with implied consent, you know, say she walks into the hospital and she signs the form agreeing, you know, generally agreeing to be treated by the hospital. What we're really talking about in the situations that you're describing are situations where, you know, care then progresses. The woman then meets the nurse, meets the doctor who was then saying, okay, now we want to do this to you. And she says, no, thank you. I don't want that. The, the, the argument that you're reporting in your article and that women sometimes face and receive from providers or that people then use to justify the use of force on women after the fact is that it doesn't matter that the word no is coming out of her mouth right now because something that she did earlier is taken to mean yes, and that's going to be used to trump the word no that's coming out of her, her mouth right now. Exactly. And that's... um Right. Yeah. And I agree with Farah Diaz-Tello, quoted in your article, that implied consent never overrides explicit non-consent. At the end of the day, what matters is, what does the person actually consent to? What are they indicating that they actually want in the circumstances of this encounter? And that's what governs. (laughs) You have the right to say no during childbirth, just like you have the right to say no um, to any other touching of your body, anytime. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to a quick, quick break, Hermine. And okay. when we come back, I want to talk about what other situations, not birth related, where implied consent is used as a way to, you know, justify violations after the fact. Okay. Sounds good. This is Birth Aloud with my mom, Kristen Muscucci. My mom works at Birthman Opti. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. You're listening to Birth Aloud. Our guest is Hermine Hayes Klein, and we're talking about implied consent in both maternity care and in general. So before we went to the break, we were talking about implied consent as it applies to maternity care. 
what are what are some other areas in life where implied consent has been used as sort of a weapon against women who feel like they've been violated? Well, I mean, the obvious examples are in the cases cases of um, sexual assault and um, women's right to say no to sexual touchings of their body. The idea of, of implied consent is what has undermined women's ability to get accountability for sexual assault on a date the concept of date rape, the defenses in in those cases and sort of barriers to any kind of criminal accountability have really hinged on the idea that the no coming out of her mouth didn't matter because her consent was implied through what she wore, what she ordered at dinner that night, whether she let him kiss her, whether she let him into her home, and the idea that by doing any of those things or any of many other things, leaving the home, going in public, et cetera, the woman has implied consent to sexual intercourse. And then, of course, the other major legal area where implied consent has been a barrier to accountability for sexual assault is in the area of marital rape. Marital rape, pretty much you know, throughout the patriarchal world, was not a crime until very recently. The idea being that a woman implied consent to sexual relations when she entered into the marriage contract and that therefore she loses the right to explicitly say no in any individual encounter. But, you know, the feminist movement has been addressing those concerns uh, vigorously for decades now and, you know, making progress so that, you know, marital rape in the United States really only became a crime in all 50 states by 1993. But even today, there are differences in the way that marital rape is defined from other forms of rape. But yeah, it's only in the 90s in the United States did marital rape actually become, did the sort of implied consent become the fact that a wife can say no, despite the sort of assertion of implied consent. And in many other countries, it's only been in the 2000s that marital rape has become a crime. So when we consider that, that culturally, all of our traditions have been carrying a narrative that a woman can actually lose the right to say no to sexual intercourse or sexual touching based on her relationship to the rapist, concepts of implied consent in her behavior. It's maybe not so surprising that uh, we're so quick to believe that a woman can um, forfeit the right to say no in other relevant situations, like when she's giving birth. Yeah. Well, specifically with two of the cases that I mentioned in the article, it was about a woman who had consented to a vaginal exam and then Mm -hmm. received an additional procedure, a stripping of the membranes during that vaginal exam that she had not consented to. And in one case, Mm -hmm she was actually crying and screaming and saying no and stop. And afterwards she was told, we're sorry, but the doctor didn't need to ask for your permission. And I guess apparently didn't need to stop even after you were saying no, like we're sorry this happened, but gosh, you know, this, this just happens. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that sounds pretty familiar 
to discourses around sexual assault. You know, that that when a woman is crying and saying no and um, is told that she didn't actually say no or that her no was not something that was legally relevant because of some other narrative around rights to access her body. And again, I think what we need to remember when we're talking about implied consent with hospitals is that we're talking about situations where the woman is clearly communicating her non-consent. And I, to prepare, to remind myself about the sort of dates when uh, marital rape became illegal in different countries, I went to the wiki page on marital rape. The passage around France caught my eye. France also only made marital rape a crime in the 90s. And it says, in 1992, the court convicted a man of rape, the rape of his wife, stating that the presumption that spouses have consented to sexual acts that occur within marriage is only valid when the contrary is not proven, right? So what they're saying here is, all right, it might be that there is implied consent to sexual relations in marriage, but in circumstances where the person is actually saying no, the no trumps. That's got to be the case if women have any right to autonomy over their bodies in the context of marriage, when they're out on a date, when they're walking the street, and when they enter a hospital. Yeah. How can we, how can we compare violations in maternity services to violations in sex? I know we've done that a little bit here, mm-hmm. but let's, let's yeah. talk about well, that a little bit more. Yeah. First of all, the fact is that women compare the violation of consent in labor and delivery to sexual assault, including women who have, in fact, experienced sexual assault and experienced non-consented cutting and uh, other kinds of touching while they were giving birth. And something that I have found interesting about it is that legally, in most legal traditions, non-consented surgery is defined legally as assault, right? You know, and that's talking generally about, say, kidney surgery or any kind of surgery on a patient's body. And so when we consider that non-consented medical touching or cutting is legally defined as an assault, maybe it's not so difficult to understand how women experience non-consented cutting and touching during childbirth as sexual assault, given that the forms of touching that occur while women are giving birth involve their sexual body, involve their genitals, involve their womb. So, you know, actually the legal framing helps to make sense how women are experiencing this kind of touching. Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting point you make that women themselves describe it this way. That's And, And I think that, you know, another way to think about that comparison is also that Non-consented touching is experienced very differently from consented touching. And so that's important to remember that there's a really big difference between a consented C-section and a non-consented one, and that the difference is as vast as consented sexual contact versus non-consented sexual contact. If a woman has sex with somebody and she wants it, that we call that sex. And generally, that's something that people enjoy and that is positive. But when a woman has sex with somebody that she didn't consent to have sex with, it's a trauma, right? And so that's a way that sort of women who have experienced C-sections that they felt good about and that they, or that they felt were necessary in their context can understand the very different experience of that same surgery by women who experienced it in a non-consented, coercive, violent context. Yeah. Well... There are also more parallels when we look at the barriers that 
women face to accountability for either one of those things, legal mm-hmm. barriers and other barriers. How about right. that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that it sort of circles back to what we were just talking about with um, the way in which implied consent has been used as an actual barrier to legal accountability for rape and for assault. Accountability for sexual assault remains extremely elusive for women, despite advances and changes in the law that have occurred in recent decades. So we as a culture are still wrapping our minds around the idea that women really do own their bodies, own their sexual bodies, and can must be respected as the owners and the central agents of those bodies. And that includes their, their bodies as mothers. Yeah, and that they generally can be believed. Right. Believe right. How how has the proof the proof of rape changed over the years? Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think it used to be widespread, and and I'm not sure the extent to which rules around evidence vary state to state on now. But it used to be the case that you know evidence of quote implied consent was you know significant for defense, including what she wear, including whether she ordered something expensive, you know, at the date that night. I think that probably the biggest barrier that women face to accountability for violation of consent in childbirth is finding an advocate willing to pursue their case because the women can't bring these cases themselves. They're not lawyers and often they have newborns, but these cases are, you know, they're challenging powerful cultural biases that are also held by doctors that women in fact don't have the right to consent <laughs> that the lawyers themselves might also have to some extent, or even if they, they have it that, you know, the lawyers have to make an economic analysis of what do they expect will be the damages award from a suit like this, where often the damage is psychological and emotional. You know, this woman, we've got a shattered mother trying to carry on and raise her children often physically damaged, like Renat Dre in the case that you mentioned in your article, whose, you know, whose bladder was lacerated during what she experienced as a violent and punitive surgery. And so there, but what can we expect to be the damage award for that? And then what's the lawyer's cut? And then does that justify the amount of work that the lawyer anticipates will be necessary to achieve a good outcome on this case? As you know, only a tiny handful of the cases that we've heard about, which we know there are many more than the women who contact us have achieved any kind of legal accountability for the violation of women's rights uh, during birth. Yeah, completely. Yeah. There's so much work to be done there. And it goes, a lot of it Mm -hmm. does go back to, as you said, the difference between physical damages and emotional and psychological damages. I mean, that's just, it's just something that's not well recognized in the law. Right. I saw I saw that quantified a little bit during the Malatessa versus Brookwood case where mm-hmm. it had to be explained to the judge and jury how how mentally and emotionally and psychologically damaging it was to to Caroline Malatesta the woman who was assaulted mm-hmm. and to her husband and to her children and to her parents and mm-hmm. even then, um, I don't, you know, I don't recall them really bringing in her PTSD as, as something that they were asking for damages for in the case. And right. I know that's because it's just not seen as legitimate. 
even though right the the significance and an extent of Caroline's physical damages is is why she got accountability for the assault that she experienced. Right, and yet you and I speak with people all the time who describe the effects of often PTSD following mm-hmm. a traumatic maternity care experience. And I remember it was, it was heartbreaking interviewing women about their traumatic birth experiences during the project that I worked on about birth trauma and obstetric violence. And so many of them talked about not being able to bond with their babies. And it was, it was like terrifying and heartbreaking to hear them say, I felt like it wasn't my baby. Like they just handed me a baby in the hospital and I couldn't love it. I couldn't smile at it. And and using words like it about their, the baby right in front of them and going home and having you know, hating being a mother, absolutely hating it or being very conflicted about it, loving it and hating it at the same time and or being very triggered by the presence of the baby by the anniversary of that baby's birth. Like there are so many residual and downstream effects of that kind of trauma that it doesn't end after you leave the hospital. It can affect you for your entire life in some cases. That's right. And your family. Yeah. Yes. Just as with sexual assault, right? So women, like most women who experience sexual assault do not see any legal accountability for what happened to them. They just carry on with the memory of what happened to them. What we have to ask ourselves is what does it mean to say we have a right to say no if there's no accountability for the violation of that right? Can we even say that we have the right to say no? So I actually got a really interesting email this morning that I meant to mention to you. It was from Beverly Beach, who is sort of this legendary women's rights in childbirth campaigner in the UK. She- Yes mentioned that back in the day when there was this public outcry about women's rights after there was like written evidence that doctors were being told that women don't really have any meaningful right to refuse interventions in birth that had gotten out. And, you know, there was just this general outcry. The effect was at some point that language was added to consent forms that said, if the right of refusal is violated, it is considered assault on a patient, which I thought was so cool, right? Yes, that's amazing. (laughs) I don't think we have anything like that here. That would be an incredible advancement, as would sort of recognition in in the medical training and of doctors, nurses, and midwives of what patient rights really are and how those rights can actually be supported in practice and why it is in fact reasonable for 10 different women to make 10 different sets of decisions regarding interventions during childbirth and why those women have the right to expect support for their individual needs and choices. Totally. Yeah. And it would be nice to not have to be bringing lawsuit after lawsuit about these things, but instead have this have this be embraced by 
by hospitals and by medical institutions and medical schools that this right. matters. And can we, can we start training people differently and can we start educating totally. them differently? And can we make it really clear that if you work in our facility, this is what constitutes assault and it, we're not going to allow that to happen here. And we care what our patients say. And when they come to us and say, I was assaulted in your facility, that's going to matter. And there's going to, there, there will be consequences for that, which that's right. at this we just time, we close just, the gap. Mm-hmm. close the gap between the ACOG committee opinion of June, 2016 on the right to refuse medically recommended treatment and the realities that women are experiencing on the ground in maternity care. Yeah, that would be the, I guess that's the outcome we're looking for, right? That's right. We are almost out of time. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you for your good work, Kristen. Do you have any, do you have any final thoughts on all of this? Um, We've got another like five minutes or so. If there's anything that you want to delve into a little bit more, anything that we've missed. No, I, I mean, I think nothing comes to mind. I think that we're, you know, we're discussing, I mean, I, I think that it would help for all stakeholders to be familiar with the data regarding the pressures on providers in their recommendations of treatment, um, regarding the sort of accuracy of their predictions of a bad fetal outcome um, when they recommend intervention, and to hear some of the stories that you and I hear in order to better understand where their patients are coming from. I think that one of the things that we would like to see is a little bit more humility on the part of obstetrics with regard to its dysfunctions and therefore a little bit more support for patients who are trying to work with their providers as a team to to get what everybody truly wants, which is a happy, healthy outcome for mother and baby. Yes. And I tend to think that the good doctors who we hear from and talk to and work with they, like you said, they're, they're not, they're not seeing this stuff firsthand because they don't practice this way. So it can be sort of theoretical, I think, for a lot of doctors who wouldn't dream of violating someone in this way. But like you said, please listen to us because we have thousands of examples of times when these violations are happening, have happened, and will continue to happen if something big doesn't change. Right. And I think that that helping providers to understand the role of unconscious bias in their perception of these encounters could go a long way to doing that. Both the biases that drive the question like, well, does she have the right to say no if I think the baby's in danger to the biases that can affect the power relations between them and the person standing in front of them, not only um, on the basis of the doctor-patient relationship, on the basis of um, sex, but for other you know, racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic reasons as well. And the more conscious we can be of the biases that are driving perception and, and also of the sort of rights that form the barrier for the patient, the more likely we're going to come out of this um, encounter with everybody feeling okay. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Hermine. Thank you, Thank you so much. your work and for the show. My pleasure. Keep up the good work.
To read my article on implied consent, you can go to www.birthmonopoly.com slash implied consent, all one word. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time. This program is supported by attorney Susan Jenkins, a national advocate for midwives and birth activists, specializing in business, governmental, and political issues related to birthing rights and the practice of midwifery. She can be reached at area code 866-686-1348. Would you like to support Birth Aloud Radio? Please contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com.